Welcome to Season 5 of KnowledgeCast, hosted by Jack Williams. We're excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about this new season along with our guest in previous seasons at jackwwilliams.com slash podcast. Now let's listen in to an all-new episode with Jack and this week's special guest. Well, welcome to our fifth season of KnowledgeCast. Glad that you join us today, and if you're a first-time listener, we welcome you. If you're one of our regulars, thanks for coming back. Uh, today, our guest is Bronco Mendenhall. Bronco spent 17 years as a college head football coach, 11 at uh, Brigham Young, and six at the University of Virginia. His teams were bowl eligible 16 of the 17 years he served as the head coach, which is amazing. Bronco's teams produced 60 players that went to the NFL, and his programs ranked seventh in the most academic All-Americans. Now, Bronco has, has always approached coaching from a different perspective than most college coaches in that he really does truly believe in holding his players to a high standard of accountability in all areas of their life, not just football. And we'll find out shortly that football is actually fifth on his list of priorities. Bronco took over a struggling program at uh, BYU, and after his first year of tra transition, he rolled off four straight double-digit winning seasons. And then after his sixth season at UVA, Bronco announced that he was resigning from UVA, not retiring, which we'll talk about in a minute. Bronco now lives in Montana on his ranch with his wife, Holly, and is in demand as a speaker for corporations and organizations. I had the opportunity to meet Bronco recently through a mutual friend and have really enjoyed the conversations we've had since that introduction. And I'm excited that you're going to have an opportunity to get to know him as well. This is actually going to be the first of two back-to-back -back podcasts with Bronco. So Bronco, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Really look forward to it. Well, when you were named head coach at BYU, that was your first uh, job as a head coach, first time as a head coach. You inherited a, a program that had experienced great success under the legendary Lavelle Edwards, but had kind of fallen on tough times since he'd retired. Being your first time as a head coach, what was your game plan going into that job? Well, there, there's a lot that goes into that, and I'm going to backtrack even a little bit further. Uh, when So Brigham Young University is a really unique institution. Uh, it's owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and so 98.5% of all young people that attend BYU are members of the same faith. Within that faith, there's a unique honor code uh, where there's a dress and grooming standard, there's also a really a strong health code. So no tobacco, no alcohol, no premarital sex. And so uh, really, really unique standards at a very special place. Anyway, to your point, there were three seasons there under coach Gary Croton, where BYU was not winning, even though they got off to a strong start under his career on his tenure. Uh, but there was also honor code violations that were pretty significant in young men being dismissed from the program. So Brigham Young University reached out and tried to find and offered the job to others. And literally, uh, the job was declined at least two times, maybe three times. The defensive players, I was serving as the defensive coordinator at the time, the defensive players went to the administration and said, interim administration, because the athletic director got fired also and said, we, we'd like you to give our coach a chance. So I basically got the job by default. There was no <laughs> one else. There was no one else that would take the job. And, and so I was given the job and I was given the job by body language of 
we're going to give you the job. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to try to find a real coach while you have the job <laughs> because we don't think you're going to be successful. So it was kind of under that circumstance. Anyway, I, uh, the game plan, I wish that I had one. What I did know uh, as serving as the defensive coordinator, the standards had to be elevated consistently throughout the program. And so we were having some success defensively, but the identity of the team was splintered. The principles were fractured and the consistency was wanting in terms of expectations. And so what I did know is there had to be a unification around really high expectations and really high standards and then consistency in its enforcement, meaning that um, people know that um, if I say something, it's actually going to happen. And I only will say what I mean. I won't say anything else unless it's going to happen, unless it's meaningful. And so uh, we had the first team meeting, and this is a long answer to question, but my first team meeting as the head coach, immediately after the meeting, after I framed expectations, I walked to my office and I looked behind me and there were five players walking just in tow, much like um, uh, little chicks following their mom. And I walked <laughs> to my office and they sat in my in my waiting room and one at a time they came in. And again, we hadn't even practiced yet. All we'd had is one meeting. And each of the five said that they would, would like to leave the program. And as I asked each one about their reasons and their motives, it was all in relation to the standards. I presented the standards clearly. I presented them transparently. And I also um, explained them that they are real. And this will be the, and I explained the accountability system um, for the expectations. And these are things as simple as class attendance will be mandatory. Um, the honor code is real here. You've signed it. I expect you to live by it all the time, not some of the time. So already things that were just inherent to the program, all I expressed is these are real. These will be enforced. And I expect you to keep your word. And the five players that left that first day, others did about a third of the team in terms of um, the transition, just in terms of accountability of doing what they said they would do. Um, uh, chose to not do what they say they were going to do. So anyway, back to your question, my game plan first and foremost was consistency, transparency, and accountability. And those were cultural elements. Uh, and I believe that going to this idea of who first, then what, I knew the schemes, I knew the strategy, and I knew the processes would flush out as I was, was clearer over time of what needed to happen. But I, I believe that the culture precedes performance. And what I did know is culturally, man, we had a lot to do just on very basic and simple things. And so that's really where it started. Well, that's quite a foundation. I said you were fortunate that those five and the others that came in and quit, that they left and quit. They quit and left. They didn't stay and quit, yeah. uh, which is, is where your real problems are. So there is there is a, a fascinating uh, choice scale that I've learned and I've used throughout my career. And Stephen Covey's responsible for developing it. And I, I love to read. And and so there's another great book called Speed of Trust for our listeners. If, if you've read, read it. it, yeah, very, very book. good. But anyway, this this um, this choice scale doesn't come from that book, but it's kind of referenced. And the choice scale means when when a person is making a choice and the greatest gift I could give them was feedback, transparency and clarity. Right. So they knew what they'd be choosing. I, I love I think the greatest gift we have is the power of choice. But I, so I, I really work hard to frame things so they know what they're choosing. But anyway, to your point, the very bottom of the choice scale is a level that's called rebel or quit. 
Uh-huh. And so quit means quit and then leave. Rebel actually is to to your point, it means quit but stay. And that's not only affecting their performance, but it's affecting others. And, and that creates a management issue for leadership, right? And so anyway, rebel or quit is that bottom tier. Right above that isn't much better. That's called malicious obedience. And, <laughs> so, <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever worked with someone that's like that or met someone, but man, they're no fun to be around and there's no progress and they're going to grumble the whole time. And, and so that that's a little better than rebel or quit, but not much. And right <laughs> above that, there's this stage called willing compliance. Well, they'll do it, but they're not going to be smiling. They're not going to be engaged. And it just looks like work. Their whole demeanor just is like, yep. you know. And so nothing positive happens in those bottom three tiers. Right above that, it starts to be way more fun. You get to what's called cheerful cooperation. And so like you and I, I mean, we're both enjoying it and smiling and can't wait to talk about leadership and helping other people. And, and so there's a cheerfulness that happens and a vibrancy, but also a cooperative spirit. And so now growth starts to happen right about that level. Above that one, it gets even better and deeper. It goes to heartfelt commitment, which we both have regarding the development of young people. And then it goes even deeper to where it's creative excitement, where literally you're, you you wake up at night and you're you're writing something down for the next idea or someone's on your mind and you're thinking about a quote or a book to recommend to them or stopping in to see someone. It just goes all the time. So I was lucky. Um, so I architected the transparency and the framing of choices. And it really wasn't an option. As soon as I could discern someone was rebelling and staying, right? Uh, the accountability increased to the level where it would just was so uncomfortable to stay, right? That doesn't mean uh, punitive. Right. It doesn't mean um, that I was speaking down to them in any way. It was just the precision of the accountability increased to where every decision that was outside of the rules had what I called swift and certain. So I think that the best accountability is the faster it happens, and the more consistently it happens is the best chance for change. And so I just doubled down on that. And eventually they came to me and said, you know, this isn't for me. And I said, I'm so sorry that you've chosen that. So again, I wasn't choosing, they were choosing. Right. I thought it was really important for them to make sure they they link their accountability to their future. Oh, I think that's so, so very, very true. Well, you kind of along those lines, after you set the parameters very clearly. I wish you could have taped that first meeting. Um, <laughs> you made a unique decision to hire a business consultant, the guy who authored the book about you, who specialized in organizational design to help you get started. What what prompted you to, to go that route? Yeah. So I, there's a great story. And I know stories are facilitators of long-term memory. And so for our listeners, I'm going to tell the story and maybe this will answer the question. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I couldn't sleep. After, so I was named head coach and I was in my office. It might've been five o'clock the next morning. I, I just, I couldn't sleep. So I, I went in and sat in my new office at my new desk, the head coach title on the, on the door, just overwhelmed and not knowing where to start. And on my desk already uh, in those days, the secretary would take uh, messages and put them on a little pink slip of paper for who had called. Right. And I was on my desk and that, that, <laughs> that stack of those pink papers on my desk was already just, it was about to topple over. There were so many of them. <laughs> anyway, I was looking at that list of, of, of pink papers and I heard a knock on the door and it's, I mean, it's early and Lavelle Edwards, um, he knew 
that um, he knew what you were experiencing. He, he did. And he knocked on the door and I opened it and I was so glad to see him. And he sat down and he pulled two, well, he set up the chairs. He put two chairs really close together. And we sat down and he looked at me at kind of this grandfatherly mentoring type way, which I was great with. And he, he his first words were, man, you have a tough job. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that when I got hired. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. And that's not helping. And he paused for a long time. And then he said, but you have a great job. And then he went on to tell me how come. And, and he counseled me and, and put his arm around me and just gave me some direction and some brutal facts, right? He made sure this, I knew it was going to be very difficult, but he also made sure I understood it was going to be great, which leadership work is. So anyway, after that, he left and I went back to that, that stack of uh, messages and I randomly I randomly pulled one, just, I got to start somewhere. So I randomly pulled one. And the one I pulled was Paul Gustafson. I, oh, didn't really? know, I didn't know who Paul was. So Paul is an organizational design expert. Um, man, he's consulted with so many amazing companies and fortune 500 companies. And I called literally out of the blue. And I, I, I got his wife, Chris Ann. I said, Chris Ann, I'm Bronco Mendenhall, the new head coach at BYU. He's, oh yeah, we know who you are. And, and Paul wasn't available at the moment. And I remember finally Paul called me back uh, later that day. And I said, Paul, I've never been a head coach. I've been a successful defensive coordinator, but I've heard you're someone I can learn from. And that's how it started. And Paul donated his time to me. He was an alum of Brigham Young University, a former player there under Lavelle Edwards. Um, I believe he might've been Lavelle's first walk-on and just to give back. And we formed a great relationship and our relationship ended up framing so many things that accelerated the growth of our program. So our first season, we were bowl eligible and, and went to um, the Las Vegas Bowl and lost the Cal in a two-minute drive at the end. And But then we went 11 and 2, 11 and 2, 10 and 3, 11 and 2. And over that whole tenure, we were just maybe, I think, two games shy of matching Lavelle's record. Paul had so much to do with that and the speed. And so he would go after all these amazing companies and article and and read and learn. And he would pass that information on to me. And then I would just apply it uh, in the best way that I could. And so our speed and our knowledge transfer really accelerated the growth of the program. And so that's how I met Paul. That's how we got started. And then, as you mentioned, he co-authored a book about our program called Running Into the Wind that kind of talks about the five smooth stones, which are his that I learned about organizational design. Well, let's, let's go right into those five smooth stones. You, that's a good lead in. Let's talk about what, what those are. Yeah, well, uh, the, the smooth stones are symbolic of, um, and for any of our listeners that um, are, were fascinated by um, the Bible or the stories, uh, David in fighting Goliath, he was authentic to himself and he chose um, stones from a brook right. to slay this giant challenge or um, as a leader, that's the way that I'll frame it. So he was authentic to himself, used what he knew, and always believed it was possible while others thought it wasn't possible. And so anyway, that's how Paul kind of framed these smooth stones. But the first one is, is really regarding strategic differentiation. So, so many people think, right, that just taking the same system that someone else is doing and putting it in place is strategy. So differentiation, BYU was already in a great space for that. It was the only institution owned and operated by the LDS faith that played football. So it was already already differentiated. Right. And so the key then, right, is we, so if you would say, okay, what a huge advantage. 
um, then how do we leverage that? And so we weren't looking to be anyone else. And in the world of strategy, right, you play the same game differently or you play a different game. And so we were looking to distinguish ourselves. So smooth stone number one is you can compete on differentiation, right? And so how can we become different than our competitors in some way, shape, or form uh, for an advantage, not only in terms of outcome, but for the benefit of all participants in the program? So that's number one. Number two is, is one of my favorites. It's you get what you design for. So I, I use the term, you're perfectly designed for the results you get. It takes all um, excuses out. So if we don't play well, um, I would tell my coaches and the team that I didn't design this well enough. The plan wasn't designed well enough. Our practice, practice structure, the number of repetitions, there wasn't an accident that we lost. And it's not an accident if we win, you design for it and we're perfectly designed for the results we get. And I love how that focuses back on what we can do and the accountability component, as well as the initiatives that we put in place and how that ties to outcome. And so it's great ownership. So anyway, that was smooth stone two. Smooth stone three, organizations are made of processes and not all processes are created equal. So in the work that you've done, the CEO or the head coach, right? At the very top of that, there's this work called competitive work. That's work only that you do, that you're designed so well for, you're qualified for, and no one else in your company can do it as well as you. And that's where you ought to spend most of your time. Right underneath that is competitive enabling work. That can be delegated, um, but it's really important work. So the strength and conditioning coach, wow, is that amazing work. Our academic coordinator, wow, is that amazing work. Offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, special teams coordinator, uh, player personnel director, right? All those circles are going at the same time. That's happening while the main strategic work is happening by the leader. So those would be processes. Man, if you don't have a great system for answering your emails, that can pull the leader down to what's called business essential work, right? Those are things that have to be done, but if you don't have a great system for it, man, you lose out on the main work you can do to do other work and you really become inefficient. So my point is, right, Spoonstone 3 is about the processes and they're all different and they're not created. They don't add the same amount of value, but they need the right owner for each process to make sure they're handled so efficiently and that allows your organization to gain momentum. That, so that anyway. was one. That was one that I found very interesting when I was reading that uh, to to place a value on each one of the processes and 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 label them as you've done. And uh, I'd never seen it uh, displayed that way. And I, it really provided a lot of clarity. So excuse well, me for interrupting. Does, yeah. No. What it does is it allows the leader then to 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 have a balance in their life, not in in relation of uh, time matching but in a, in, a manner, in a matter of energy. And so that allows the efficiency to happen so quickly and so and the autonomy, right? So people are motivated, we know in the workplace most by three things, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So if they have autonomy and mastery within their domain at that level of work, that frees up the leader to be able to do um, a different level of work, but the whole organization actually to move, move more efficiently and that allows more family time. So my, my goal was to have the most efficient and effective organization in all of college sport. And this idea of having to sleep in your office and in cots and not seeing your family except on Thursday for 15 minutes or whatever, I, I am not, I'm not doing that and I don't believe in it. The, the, and I don't think it's necessary. So anyway, that all goes to the processes now that works. Smooth, smooth stone number four, I love this, is knowledge is the purest form of competitive advantage. So that doesn't mean who's the smartest. It means the processes for how the people in your organization learn, cross-pollinate, right? How they communicate, 
um, what new material that they're assigned or that they're seeking. And we want lifelong learners. And so we're always looking to become the next and best version of ourselves rather than remaining, right? The growth mindset is really important. So the systems around knowledge is super important because it changes so fast. If you look at the college athletics right now, holy smokes, between the, the new legislation and what's happening, there's a lot of transitions going on. And, and man, you got to be smart and fast and have knowledge coming in as well as it being exchanged effectively to and implemented to keep up with it. And then the last one, which is kind of your wheelhouse, smooth stone number five, which is my, is my most favorite. Um, leadership is capturing hearts and minds. And so it really talks about that part. You know, I, I have a statement that uh, knowledge is not powerful. In fact, the Bible says knowledge can puff up, but the application of knowledge plus the, excuse me, the acquisition of knowledge plus the application of knowledge, that's powerful. That, that is exactly what you just defined re really eloquently and precisely is smooth stone for that. That is the knowledge. Um, and so you just you hit it right on. Well, we talked about uh, earlier your priorities, and I think you probably shocked your BYU <laughs> team when you said, let me make it clear. Football is your fifth priority. Um, how did they react and then describe what one through four is? They the so first of all the players were bewildered. Uh, talk radio hosts just went crazy with that idea, <laughs> um, and and it wasn't widely accepted um, until we demonstrated we could win and, and be in double digit wins um, and do that. Right. Yeah, that's, and, when, that's when they said we we believed you all along. Then after that eleventh <laughs> win, hit, right? Exactly. And and so there there's so many uh, folks in the world of college athletics that that um, espouse family. And then I, I usually just say, can I see your calendar? And, <laughs> and I say that it doesn't look like that's the number one priority. Or they'll say faith is my priority. And I ask the same, can I see what's your daily routine? Can I just see? I'd love to hear how you do that and what what faith as a number one priority looks like in, in your life right now. And if the calendar and the professor, <laughs> the professment, even though that's not a word, right, of a priority, if that didn't match, then that's really not truthful, right? And so anyway, faith and family were super important. Knowledge, academics, right? I want lifelong learners. I wanted kids to become students and have great careers to where a football propelled them into chapter two of their lives, right? It didn't hold them back from, it propelled them into. And man, I thought friends were really important. <laughs> um, I don't think you can have many truly great um, and dear friends uh, unless... We'll put it this way, unless you put time, energy and effort into friends, you won't have any. And and so it's easy because they're built into the team and I'm not diminishing that whatsoever. But I like the idea of um, what about kids in class and what about kids at church and what about, um, uh, you know, kids that might have similar interests. In addition, I think it just adds more balance. And then we got to football. So my point is when football is is one of the top five. You, you're tired, right? There's a lot on your life and there's a lot on your plate, but that's right. When you become a parent, there's a lot on your plate. When you become a grandparent, there's a lot on your plate. So I think a fulfilling life is, is encompasses more than just a single dimensioned uh, area. And don't, don't get me wrong. I love focused, committed and driven people in the world of football that want to do extra and almost are singularly focused. The reason I could take this approach is because they were so singularly focused, 
I wasn't having to motivate and drive that harder. I was actually trying to add some balance to what they were already doing. And that's why I presented it as such. You also made it very clear that once that whistle blew and practice started, it was a very high priority for that next hour and a half <laughs> or two hours. And, and so the world of deliberate practice, we know in the research of deliberate practice, it's so taxing. If you do deliberate practice correctly, it's so taxing and so exhausting mentally and physically. Most can't last more than 45 minutes. And so this idea of three hour practices and four. Uh, so number one, I think it's um, not very smart, but I also think you're not practicing deliberately. If that's what you're doing and lasting that long, the research says it's not possible to last that long. So I liked it, it to be where you could barely make it off the practice field after 18 periods because you were so mentally and physically exhausted, but smiling because of the accomplishment that you felt. And, and I much preferred that. I agree. Well, let's go back to culture for a minute. Uh, obviously, culture is important in any organization. And uh, when you have a particularly when you have a turnaround situation, you did some pretty innovative things to create that culture. You talked about accountability, but one of the things was the eco challenge. Uh, you had a number of them, but uh, talk, tell us a little bit about the eco challenge. Yeah, the, the eco challenge actually started when I was an assistant coach at the University of New Mexico. And at that time, there was a television program that launched called the eco challenge and, and teams from all over the country, all over the world would come to race in this adventure race. And man, they'd be in the mountains and they'd be on mountain bikes and they'd be whitewater rafting and climbing and not sleeping and going through the night and doing all these crazy things. And I was watching it and I was amazed at the uh, the galvanization of relationships through hard things together. And, and this idea that man, no one would sign up to do this. These, these people are crazy. Uh, <laughs> but I thought they were actually just um, driven and, and really uh, vibrant personalities that wanted to take on something that others didn't think was possible. And Muhammad Ali has this cool quote, right? Um, that impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men. And it goes on. Right. And so I like this idea. So anyway, my position group at New Mexico, I was coaching the defensive backs as well as defensive coordinator. And I decided in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to, to create my own little mini eco challenge. And so we, we went to this kind of triathlon format. We went to the pool and swam a mile. And then there was this, this cool uh, on mountain bikes. We went down around the Rio Grande River and then up to Sandia Peak, the base of that. And we climbed Sandia Peak and we summited up there in, in a race format. And my simple instructions were, if you sign now, up. Let me, let me stop you there. You mentioned the word we several times. You were right there with them. Go ahead. I, I was. And I was expecting to win. and Because I thought, what, what better way to lead than to be first? And, and my voice would be softer and could be quieter and less frequent if my actions represented um, competency. So anyway, um, my, my recommendation to, or my, what I asked the players is, if you sign up, um, the expectation is that you finish. I don't care how long, um, but you finish. And so I carried that, by the way. Um, so I was first in that one and every player finished. And so the, 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 the first people to reach the summit were about five hours and some, it took about 12 hours and we were getting ready to the mountain rescue literally because it was getting dark. We, we weren't sure we could find our guys that are on the mountain. And anyway, we all made <laughs> So I brought that with me to Brigham Young University as the defensive coordinator and started just with the defensive players. And so again, a mile swim, and I'm going to explain that in a second because some of the kids didn't know how to swim. So a mile swim, every stadium step, which is three miles of steps, 
a hike to the Y, which is on the mountain, which is almost straight up, then get on mountain bikes, 40 miles, three summits, three different peaks, and then the bottom of a ski resort, Sundance Ski Resort, and then you climb to the top of Arrowhead Summit, which is the top run uh, and the top point of that mountain, all on the same day. And I'm tired so, already just listening to it. So again, uh, what we found is some kids couldn't swim and still signed up. And amazingly, they would show, show up with the little floaties on their arms, et cetera. And so, so we had to um, innovate. And there was one of the pools that was kind of waist deep. And so we figured three down and backs would be the equivalent of one lap swimming if you were kind of running. So the kids that couldn't swim, they had to basically run three times the amount. And, and a down and back in this pool, 36 down and backs was a mile. And we couldn't leave until then. So we were looking for ways to include. But anyway, over the entire time at Brigham Young, I was the head coach 11 years. Um, and then I was the D coordinator for two sets, 13 years. Every single player that signed up to do it, everyone finished. Not one um, uh, did not finish. And it was just a great example of um, keeping your word. And if you choose to do something, no matter how hard it is, and 12 hours of comparing 80 pounds on a mountain bike or one young man did it with a broken hand and he literally was swimming, dragging his, his cast on the, on the gutter of the pool. And then on the mountain bike going up, he, uh, his balance, right. Cause he couldn't grip it would, the bike. would just keep pulling to the hand that could grip. That's 40 miles of just having to reset of taking left turns. <laughs> and that, that young man finished. So anyway, I looked hard at who chose to participate who, um, who, and when they finished, uh, or excuse me, where and when they finished, and that became the foundation of my teams each year as to the level of trust and the level of determination uh, uh, that I saw within our organization. That's quite a story. Well, I want to wrap up with one more question. Um, you made a pretty radical change at BYU when, uh, in in terms of how your special teams were coached, you introduced the player coach model. You know, what prompted that decision and and uh, why did it work for you? Yeah, so I, I learned from Paul Gustafson um, about stage five leadership, the different stages of leadership. And so there's the typical level of leadership where the teacher is in front and just talking to the class, right, or his position group. And then there's stage two where the leader is kind of in the middle and the group is around and there's some interaction coming in. And then the leader is actually sitting around the circle with everyone else. These are all by pictures, but I'm trying to describe. Them right. And then the leader sits around the circle and he's one of the participants still leading it, but he's one of the participants based on status and where he sits. It start anyway, it keeps moving where the leader is actually outside of the circle, dotted lines into the circle, but these lines are going all over within the circle. Um, and, but someone else has stepped up and others have stepped up where involvement equals ownership to take over so the leader can be doing other things. And so uh, I thought, uh, what better way to have an organization be driven and compete fiercely than absolute ownership um, of uh, areas of the program. And so special teams was one of them. Academics was another. Strength and conditioning was another. Our community service program, right? Those were all player-led programs. And what I found was, Going back to the special teams, um, so I selected who I thought would be amazing based on all their performance issues or all the performances so far in the different areas of the program, who would be the best leaders, demonstrated competencies, right? It wasn't random, demonstrated competencies and a history of what they'd done. 
And I watched them go up into players in the locker room, put their arm around them and say, Hey, I'm, I, I own the kickoff team. Um, can I count on you? And if they didn't like that response, they would not put them on the team. So literally each special team was an all-star team um, selected by our team. And then the player leader would actually be responsible for advising on scheme as well. So I had a coach advocate. The coach would then be the sounding board and the mentor to help the player if he needed help with scheme and strategy. Uh, But the players did the grading as well. So from scheme install to player selection and assessment to the grading itself, um, that was all player led. And uh, our coaches were uncomfortable, to say the least, with that model. Um, And I think they were feeling threatened as to, well, what, what do we do if we're the coach and someone else is coaching? And my point to them was you're freed up to do more of the work, get deeper in finding every single advantage you can find to then give and apply um, to our player leader to give us our best chance. So it freed them up to do actually more and deeper work. And anyway, I, I, I really love the model, but the players qualified for that uh, over time in our program. Well, quickly, they, the, the coaches saw the results and uh, exactly. which, which supported the decision because you made tremendous improvement in each one of your, your special teams. That, that's right. And as you know, it, it's, a, it's a result-oriented world and an outcome-related business. And so I still acknowledge all of that. However, what about developing leaders at the same time? And what if, what if you take radical approaches in pursuit of leadership development and also results, not one compromising the other? Well, what if, what if you're brave enough to try that and, and then maybe wise enough to pull it off? It's just, it's a pretty magical thing. I, I agree. Well, Bronco, listen, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your day to be with us. You, uh, you certainly uh, shared some interesting insights and experiences that I'm sure our listeners enjoyed hearing. Now, we're going to continue our interview with Bronco next week. So I know that you're going to want to tune back in to learn more about Bronco as he talks about uh, his time at Virginia and his decision to step away from coaching for a while. So until then, make sure you're being a positive influence in the lives of others.